Today from the Global Lane, America's open border and human trafficking. More than a quarter of a million migrant children at risk. It is perverse. It is exploitation. And there is no reason the left should be able to defend this policy. Jumping on the bandwagon, St. Louis joins San Francisco and considers paying reparations to its black citizens. Reparations is just another iteration of this whole assault on our culture. Taiwan invasion, not by China's military, but of a young American's heart in a new PureFlix film. God doesn't always work the way we think that he should. I fell in love with the country. And America's children, do they belong to the government or their parents? There's no such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. And it's all right here on The Global Lane. 27 million people worldwide are victims of human trafficking. 27% of them are children. A recent bombshell New York Times investigation, ignored by most of the mainstream media, found more than 250,000 immigrant children have entered the United States in the past two years, most to provide the country with cheap labor. Well, this week, a key domestic policy advisor in the Biden administration, Susan Rice, announced she's stepping down from her job on May 26th. The reason? It may have to do with that New York Times child abuse revelation. Well, joining us with more is Laura Reese, former deputy chief of staff at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Laura, thanks for being with us. So this New York Times report uh, says more than a quarter of a million immigrant children have been forced to work as laborers in violation of child labor laws. What more can you tell us? Yes, I, I remember when <clears throat> Democrats used to care about child labor. Uh, but when you look at the nationwide numbers, Customs and Border Protection reports over 371,000 unaccompanied alien children have been encountered uh, just so far. And uh, Susan Rice wrote some truth in her uh, personal handwritten notes uh, when she was in a meeting about unaccompanied alien children, when she, she wrote that it was Biden administration's open border policies that are enticing parents to self-separate and send their children across the border unaccompanied. Uh, so yes, she is leaving and the radical left are cheering about it when it comes to the, the open border, which is frightening given how much damage they've already done and what more they seek to achieve. So she was actually opposing this policy and that, that's why she's leaving. So the Mexican cartels are also involved in trafficking children for sex. Worldwide, nearly 79% of child trafficking is for forced child prostitution. So how many of those migrant kids do you think are suffering that type of abuse right here in the United States? Well, we don't know, but we have to assume it is a large number. And, and frankly, one is too many. But the left keeps pushing these policies of uh, sending unaccompanied alien children across the border uh, because they are, frankly, building an illegal immigration system on the backs of children. They entice the children to come across the border to have their parents send them that way and then shower them with immigration benefits. And then in a few years, today's UACs become tomorrow's dreamers. And the left will demand that we give green cards to this population because they crossed as unaccompanied children. Well, yes, that's how the left designed it. It is perverse. It is exploitation. And there is no reason the left should be able to defend this policy. 
Well, it's not only Susan Rice as domestic policy director, but what about DHS Secretary Mayorkas and Vice President Kamala Harris? They're, they're in charge of the southern U.S. border and immigration issues. So what is their responsibility in all of this and why are they not doing more to stop it? Well, it's one of the many reasons Secretary Mayorkas deserves to be impeached. Uh, well, but what he says is we are taking it to the cartels where they are. And yet he's the one flaming the fire. Um, so he can't say we're going after the arsonists when he himself is one. It just is not credible. It is inhumane. Uh, and, and frankly, this section of the law needs to be repealed from the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, so-called. Um, and the groups that help the government process this and transport these people all over the country, the NGOs, including the faith-based organizations, these operations need to be defunded. Federal grant money should not be going to these groups to help this perverse smuggling and trafficking system. Okay, you worked at DHS, so how much of this open border policy resulting in human trafficking, guns, drug running, is driven by corrupt politicians and officials on both sides of the border? Well, certainly corruption is involved. There is a lot of money to be made in this. And, and you know, as we speak, the House Homeland Security Committee is debating a bill uh, to secure the border and calling for these um, NGO open border operations to be defunded. And boy, uh, the left is just hollering about that language, including the faith-based organizations, uh, because it's a billion-dollar industry for them. So why do you think it's been 40 years since we've had real immigration reform? Well, frankly, there are many who don't want to truly solve the problem. They want the issue to continue to bat around like a pinata. Uh, and all it does is it endangers Americans and it endangers the migrants themselves. Any sovereign nation deserves a lawful and an orderly and a manageable immigration system. The U.S. is no exception. And yet this administration it has uh, set a lot of historic records. And unfortunately, they're all bad. Okay, I'm sure this will be a big issue in the 2024 election season. Laura Reese of the Heritage Foundation, thank you, Laura, for providing those insights. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis is now the latest U.S. city to consider paying reparations to African Americans as compensation for slavery. A special commission will spend one year examining the issue before sending recommendations to the city. Council members in San Francisco are already considering making payments of $5 million to each qualifying black resident in that city. So are reparations the best way to make amends for America's past sin of slavery? What could be done instead to bring about racial reconciliation? Well, joining us is longtime civil rights and community development leader Robert Woodson. Mr. Woodson is an author, founder and president of the Woodson Center. Mr. Woodson, it's so good to talk with you again. So tell me, what advice do you have for the Reparations Commission in St. Louis? Stop this foolish preoccupation that's deflecting attention away from the more critical issues facing not only black sections of black America, but the entire nation. That this whole somehow uh, black America is being used uh, starting a few years ago with the 1619 Project at the, at, at the New York Times, black, uh, America's stain of slavery and its, its uh, birth defect is really being weaponized against the fundamental values of this nation. And 
reparations is just another iteration of this whole assault on our culture. In San Francisco, uh, they're proposing $5 million uh, in reparations for each citizen who qualifies, and about 6% of the city residents there and 40% of the homeless are black. So how do you take care of San Francisco's homeless problems? <laughs> would, would reparations solve it? Well, first of all, we have had reparations over the years. It, it was, it's called a poverty program. Uh, we've spent $22 trillion over the course of 60 years on programs to aid the poor, uh, where 70 cents of every one of those dollars did not go to the poor, but those who serve the poor. These professional service providers ask not which problems are solvable, but which one is fundable. So we have monetized poverty in America, and that's why in the face of all these expenditures, it has not improved. And so just really, uh, anytime you give people money, you separate work from income, it has a, a terrible effect on people. Look at the people who win the lottery. 70% of them wish they had never won it because you separate work from income, it creates more problems than it solves. And so to suggest that somehow the problems of, of injustice, so-called injustice, can be satisfied by writing a check is ridiculous. A, a, a 2022 Pew Research survey found that 68% of Americans oppose reparations. Their survey found 80% of black people support it. So why is there such a disparity? Well, again, uh, a lot of people have been sold in this notion that because of our, our, our tortured past on slavery, that somehow this problem can be resolved through the, the uh, giving of money. I mean, it's, it's just a delusion. Um, and, and, and it's not going to solve the problem. Once you go down this road, many people wonder, where would it end? You give reparations to blacks, then Native Americans would want the same for their mistreatment. Japanese Americans would want the same for their internment dur during World War II. So what do you see as the best solution? How can there be forgiveness and racial reconciliation? What needs to be done to make amends for slavery? Well, we, know, we should not try to make amends for slavery. None of us should be judged by the worst of what we were in the past. How many of your listeners and viewers believe you should be judged by the worst of what you were in? America is a country of redemption. If you And so what we do at the Woodson Center is we looked at how black Americans' uh, response to oppression, it was not to uh, seek recrimination and revenge. We practiced radical grace. We gave an example, for instance, in our essays in 1776 Unites of Robert Smalls, who was a man born slave uh, and what, uh, in Sumter, South Carolina. And... He was working on a uh, supply ship, and he uh, commandeered the ship with his six crewmen, picked up their families, and turned the ship over to the Union Navy. And he became celebrated. He became wealthy after the war and went back and purchased the plantation on which he was a slave and took in the destitute family of the slave master. There is an example of radical grace in action. If someone like Robert Small could not only forgive, but offer help to the very family that enslaved him as an act of radical grace, why can't people 150 years removed find that same radical grace today? What's going to save us 
is we must point to the more severe problem, and that is the destruction of our children. So it's not enough to tell people to turn away from reparations. We must tell them where they must turn to. And so I think it's a matter of us turning our direction towards the real crisis in America, and that is the wholesale destruction of our children who are growing up without a true value of human life. If you do not respect your life, you'll take your own or someone else's. And so that's the moral vacuum that exists that I think that only faith in God can fill that. And we have endless examples at the Woodson Center of grassroots people who are living in these very troubled neighborhoods, but who have found uh, redemption and transformation. And we document it and we give examples of it. And we just need to build on this foundation of success of giving people a sense of content and meaning to their life. Okay, a little more love, a little more grace. Robert Woodson, president of the Woodson Center, thank you for providing those insights. We appreciate you. God bless you. Thank you. As China and the U.S. alliance with Taiwan remain at the forefront of East Asia geopolitics, a new PureFlix film provides a cultural view of the island nation through the eyes of a young Christian. Sun Moon is the story of 27-year-old American woman who was left at the altar, only to find God's purpose for her life in Taiwan. Well, joining us is the screenwriter and director of Sun Moon, Sydney Tooley. Sydney, I know your own experiences in Taiwan inspired this screenplay, but first, the film seems quite timely right now. So why Taiwan? And tell us a little bit about the story. Um, I lived in Taiwan for a year, and I fell in love with the country. And when you, and also just the experiences of teaching there and, and what is it like being a young student missionary or missionary or um, going to another country. And so Taiwan was something I was familiar with. I knew the people, I had the locations. And so that was kind of the launch point for me where I was like, well, this is doable. Um, and then during covid uh, the island didn't actually shut down until later, and so it was actually a really good time for this politically, but also uh, we had access to filming there. So that's kind of how we got started there. Well, initially the main character, Kelsey, uh, seems to struggle with the cultural differences, but eventually adjusts. So how many of her challenges in Taiwan are based on your own experience there? The film is is pretty biographical. Uh, the challenges of, you know, the, the dealing with the different bugs, uh, which we cut out a lot of bug things, uh, but that was kind of a big deal. Um, not being able to speak the language. All of those classroom scenes with the kids um, are all real dialogue between me and students that I had or situations um, other than our, um, our earthquake scene that we have. But, um, yeah, dealing with just the the kids and students and, and how do they, how does Eastern thought compare to Western thought? Um, and so a lot of, a lot of that is all real. And actually a lot of the students in the scenes are actually my students from um, five years ago. So tell us how you ended up in Taiwan and how did you get involved in Sun Moon? Um, so originally I had finished a film degree at Southern Avenue University and I, I kind of walked out with this, um, I don't, 
really know what I'm going to do with film. Um, I've, I'd always wanted to go and be a missionary and be a teacher overseas. And my parents got a call to go. So they called me and they were like, do you want to go? There's a job for you. And I was like, yeah, totally. Why not? I don't have anything else going on. I came back and I ended up in Nashville. I went to grad school and Sun Moon was my capstone, my thesis project. And so it was just getting the screenplay done. And then, you know, there's not in this industry, you're kind of like, it might happen. It might not happen. I don't know. Um, but timing just happened to be right for this one. Um, well, I, I can't help. I, I've got to ask you this. So uh, unlike your character in the film, uh, Kelsey, uh, you weren't left at the altar, were you? You didn't. I was not left at okay. the altar. I know. I was, I had a, there, I was snubbed. But, you know, we ramped it up to a thousand for the movie. But no, <laughs> it's not left at the altar. <laughs> and it seems that many young Christians have adventuristic, perhaps even at times glamorous, unrealistic views of mission work. And there are a lot of struggles and hardships. And I'm sure there were times when you and in this film, the character Kelsey felt like giving up. So what advice do you have for young aspiring missionaries? Uh, what sustained you and got you through it? Um, I think when you go out being aware that there are challenges to going out, because a lot of people are, have, like you said, they've, uh, they over glamorize it. And um, I think one of the biggest mistakes you can make is not being involved with the culture or not being prepared to go in to, to do, be accepting of them is the more accepting you are of that culture. And the more you can kind of know about it when you go in, um, the better you're going to have it. Um, I think for me, when I was there, I made a, a friend out there who really helped get me through the year that I was there. But really connecting with those students and being friends with those students and being involved in my school uh, really helped. And then a lot of Jesus and I took a lot of walks um, because there was many times where I was like, I'm leaving. <laughs> I can't do this. This is this was a mistake, you know, and and then something would happen. And a kid would come and say, like, you really helped them. Or, or you'd see a student turn around and, and you suddenly are like, no, actually, my purpose is here and I'm, and I'm doing it. And it's so it's looking for those little rays of sunshine that are like, you're, you're doing OK. You're making a difference. And it's really knowing that God has called you to begin with. Uh, what do you want people to take away from the film quickly? I, I would love for people to get a sense of the culture. I know that Taiwan's kind of recently been brought into uh, the spotlight a little bit, but I think it's a country that even I was unaware of uh, really. And so first of all, like culturally be able to connect with those people and see there's other cultures out there. Um, but I'd also like people to walk away with the sense that God doesn't always work the way we think that he should. Um, our everybody's journey is different. And I like to think of God as the as this map maker. And when you trust the map maker and you let Jesus take the wheel, like you could be off-roading in the jungle somewhere and just go along for the ride with it and see where you end up. Okay, Sun Moon, the new film about a young American Christian woman's experience in Taiwan is out only on Pure Flix starting May 5th. Sydney Tully, thank you for taking the time to share about this new film and your experiences. God bless you. Thank you. It's official. President Biden has released a video ad announcing he's seeking re-election. Let's finish this job. I know we can. Because this is the United States of America. There's nothing, simply nothing we cannot do if we do it together.
If he wins re-election, he'll be 82 years old when he's sworn in for a second term. Biden's age, of course, is a big concern for most Americans. But it was this comment that he made in the Rose Garden honoring Teachers of the Year that got my attention. He was quoting a former school teacher. Rebecca put a teacher's creed into words when she said, there's no such thing as someone else's child. No such thing as someone else's child. Our nation's children are all our children. It reminded me of what Hillary Clinton said at the 1996 Democratic Convention. Remember that? To raise a happy, healthy, and hopeful child. It takes all of us. Yes, it takes a village. No, Mrs. Clinton, no President Biden. Children don't belong to the government. And it doesn't take a village to raise them. It just takes committed parents. But folks, too many parents aren't raising their children well. And that's why politicians think children are the government's responsibility. When there's a void, the government is eager to step in to fill it. Fathers are absent from the home. Nearly 70% of African-American children are now born into single-parent households. And overall, one of every four kids in America is growing up without a father. That's shocking, isn't it? More shocking is the result. Society and the nuclear family are being destroyed. Deadbeat dads, fathers not paying child support, have left many single moms with no choice but to work long hours or more than one job just to survive. Exhausted at the day's end or always working, many of them are less involved in their kids' lives. And we wonder why young males are becoming trans or shooting up schools and shopping centers. They lack positive godly male influence in their lives. Godly fathers in the home who give boys discipline and teach them respect and responsibility. Without that, they have no direction, no hope. Folks, let's pray that America returns to God's model for families. Only through His wisdom, guidance, and direction will we obtain the hope that America's children and all of us need for a brighter and more prosperous future. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, YouTube, Rumble, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.